Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Bruce Liu manages Wuji, Esoterica's next-G economy ETF, which invests in 5G and its enablement of the new digital economy. Having spent time at Wisdom Tree, Alliance Bernstein, Phase Capital, and the Dow Chemical Pension Fund, Bruce's research technique was honed at some of the most prestigious sell-side and brokerage firms on the planet. Now he puts that to use exploring possibly this decade's most compelling investment trend. 5G and the technologies leveraging this next generation connectivity are revolutionizing industries in pursuit of the new digital economy. We discuss sub-themes like edge computing and cloud, as well as the companies at the vanguard of this disruption, think C-Limited and AMD. Bruce concludes by explaining how Wuji offers diversified exposure to this market megatrend and analyzes the fund's 140% returns since inception. Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Bruce. It's great to have you on the show. So how are things in New York? Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a great pleasure. Uh, as you can see there, uh, New York City looks beautiful now. We had uh, like a thunderstorm, actually not thunderstorm, just a very bad storm yesterday. But now it's just come back to normal. <laughs> yeah, great. It's a beautiful summer out there. It looks lovely out there. Yeah, actually, we're having one of our better days, 22 degrees and sunny in England, which for us isn't too bad. Um, bearing in mind, it, it rains 90% of the time. Um, so I'd like to start by asking a question that won't necessarily flow chronologically, but it will give listeners an early indication of one of the focuses of today's interview. So why, in your opinion, is 5G the biggest investment opportunity of the next decade? Okay, uh, that's, a, that's a very fair question. Uh, well, you know, before answering the question, I want to make it very clear. Uh, the way we look at 5G is not only the 5G technology itself. Mm. To us, it's, it's the yeah. 5G cycle. So if you're looking back, we went through 3G cycle and the 4G cycle, especially the 4G cycle. Everybody knows it's mobile internet. It started from like 2008, I believe, and roughly ended at uh, 2018. So look at what happened during that 10 years of time. And uh, it basically changed how people communicate with each other. You basically live on your smartphones, right? And we got Ubers, we got, uh, you know, Netflix and many, many other things. You know, that only happened because we have the mobile internet. So, you know, the significance of 5G cycle, again, it's a 5G cycle. It's, you broaden that up. It's not only about connecting the people. It's already been done in the 4G cycle. And it's more about connecting things together. I think that's the significance of the 5G cycle. It enables too many, way more many things. And to support that scenario, those like business cases, it actually is a process of disrupting the infrastructure, the whole technology stack we build up during the 4G cycle. And getting the new ones. Now everybody has heard, you know, uh, moving to the cloud and uh, we generate the data, not only from the center of the cloud, also the, on the edges of the cloud. Well, when 5G comes into play mm. and uh, you're going to get more data generated from all over the place, well, you need to communicate, you know, process data, transport data and make it useful, not only in the center. Again, it's coming all over the place. I think that's the significance of the 5G cycle. And it enables the changes from the very basic, from the very basic like a semiconductor level up to the computing architecture until to the, how the software processing the data until I don't know how long it's going to take, you know, when later on across all the verticals, you're going to apply that and having the new business cases, user cases. Mm. Uh, to me, it's not only like five, even not even 10 years process. It's probably even longer than that. Mm. Hopefully this, you know, on the, at a higher level, this answers the question. Yes, no, absolutely. I think that's a really good uh, high level answer, as you say. And we'll dig into some of those sub themes. 
uh, and smaller topics uh, as we progress. But before we get stuck into that, I'd like to get a better understanding of your career history to date, just to give the listeners a bit of context in terms of who you are uh, and to give the interview a bit of context as well. So I believe you started your career at Dow's uh, Chemical Pension Fund, or at least that was your first position within the asset management space, it would seem, uh, based on my research. Uh, and before moving on to cover institutional research strategy at Samford C. Bernstein, now part of Alliance Bernstein, um, that that firm, that second firm there, I mean, they're recognised as one of Wall Street's premier sell-side research and brokerage firms. I wonder whether you could just give us an insight into the research process and techniques you were able to learn and hone during your time there, and actually whether you've uh, taken some of those skills and methods on into your later experiences as well. That's that's a very very good summary and also very good question, uh, Hayden. You know, well, yes, and uh, towards the end of my PhD study, and uh, I find like my interest is more on the industry side rather than the academic research. Mm. So I worked my way through the institutional investors, and they finally got a chance. That's a very rare chance to directly go to the uh, you know a big pension fund at the Dow Chemical. The reason they hired me because at the time we were building up our you know absolute return program, and they needed somebody who has the PhD background to be able to do a you know very advanced analysis and research. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, to be honest with you, I stayed almost like three years over there. That's the the best place you can imagine to learn things to start your investment careers. Mm, and wow. uh, we allocate 80% of our money to the external managers, which gives me the opportunity to learn from like guys like Bridgewater, DE Shore, mm-hmm. you know, the top hedge fund manager you can imagine. Well, at the same time, I get a chance to manage 20% of money internally. And uh, myself and my boss, it's a very small team. We were giving the, you know, uh, uh, huge responsibilities at the very early stage of my career. I'm very grateful. Even now, I still like keep in touch with them. And uh, well, uh, mm. a lot of like what you mentioned, a lot of the investment process and the framework we are using today. Actually, I started building them up and learn from in that time period. Well, I truly appreciate one thing there. Uh, you know, from there, because because it's a small team, we couldn't do really like an in-depth. Uh, uh, security level uh, research at that time. Uh, but we spent so much time mm. understanding the cycles, both market cycles and, uh, and the mm. business cycles. That makes me realize how important the cycle to your investment performance and how you, you know, like later on, I'll tell you a story. The, another reason actually I left the Dow Chemical because I feel, okay, I learned so much about the cycles, the macro factors, which can, uh, you know, affect multiple asset classes. Then later on, you know, towards my career, mm-hmm. I realized, you know, I still like equity markets. I want to understand the, the, the business, the companies, you know, to, to the depth. And uh, that's why I made the move, you know, uh, to the Stanford Bursting. As you mentioned, that's, the firm was, it still is regarded as the, one of the top, you know, sell-set research firm. Uh, you know, uh, they certainly live up to it. Uh, I joined them covering the, the portfolio mm-hmm. strategy. And for the U.S. large cap, uh, we're there. I get a mm-hmm. chance to meet all the like a talented, very talented research analysts covering multiple like uh, sectors. One of our partner at Asterica, Yang Ren, he used to be covered semiconductor over there, and uh, so uh, I made a tons of friends over there. I learned how to analyze, you know, <laughs> fundamental companies. Also, gives me the, the opportunity to really combine the the macro view. You know the cycles with the the fundamental research, which mm. is the essence of the investment process we are using today. Uh, hopefully that makes sense, Hayden. I'll stop here a little bit. And let me. <laughs> no, no, that 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 combination of of kind of the macro level view with the fundamental research. You've now taken that forward, and that's what you employ at Esoterica. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it sounds like actually the perfect grounding for a career in in asset management, actually. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm very, very grateful. I feel like I consider myself for being a very lucky guy. I didn't like, you know, in the first five, seven years, I learned a lot. And, uh, you know, uh, that I don't take it for granted. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. Well, then, I mean, your next role was, was equally as interesting. I think you go on to work for Wisdom Tree as an equity strategist. So, again, sort of refining your focus on equity markets rather than sort of all asset classes, I suppose. And I wondered whether you were given a specific sector uh, to look after during your time there. 
the reason I joined Wisdom Tree back then, that was, you know, at that time, Wisdom Tree was booming because they're like, you know, new currency hash products. They got a lot of money. Mm-hmm. They try to beef up. They try to beef up their research capacity. Uh, you know, I saw that as a good opportunities for me to do something more meaningful. Really, really like, you know, you basically, a lot of like actively managed stuff they, are, uh, they have right now, we built over, you know, back then from scratch. That's the part I appreciated the most. You know, you really build something from the ground up. Uh, I think, uh, well, we don't really have very specific sector focus. It's more on the, you know, uh, on the whole market. You look at the market from different, you know, perspectives, not only from the fundamental perspective, also from the factor perspective. That's something I built up through my PhD study. So, you know, I still talk to Jeremy a lot and, uh, uh, you know, uh, he gave me a lot of like a freedom to do things that I feel like, you know, making sense for investors. Also the ETF vehicle, you know, my love for ETF actually uh, more coming from there. I got to know the industry a lot better and appreciated the beauty of that a lot more. And uh, so that's, that's, that's also a great, like, you know, uh, uh, step stone for me to come to where I am now. Yeah, okay. And then to sort of round off your career trajectory then, your position or the latest position before joining Esoterica was as partner and portfolio manager at Phase Capital. I wonder, it's not, it's not a firm that I'm familiar with. So what sort of products did Phase sort of specialize in? And can you tell us about your time there as well? Yeah. Uh, well, that's where my entrepreneurship you know, spirit uh, came mm. out to play. <laughs> uh, <laughs> towards the end of my tenure at Wisdom Tree, some colleagues and friends from Alliance Bursting, and they came out and took over a small hedge fund from Boston and moved it to New York City. Uh, basically, that's a multi-asset, macro-based, uh, you know, uh, hedge fund strategy. And uh, I'm man- I was managing their equity part of the book, you know. So uh, yeah, that's that. But you know, I appreciate that part. I appreciate the opportunity to grow in a business with your friends together. And to say what that takes, you know, start a hedge fund and what, what are the struggles and how, what you, can you do? I actually learned a lot. That also links back to why I feel like, you know, uh, especially in the U.S. market, ETF has a great potential rather than the, the, the very traditional hedge fund business model. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, then um, you leave that position and in 2019, you're CEO of Esoterica and that is the position you obviously still hold today. Yep. Um, so I want to move on to sort of discussing the firm's philosophy and what differentiates you, I think, uh, more importantly from your peers. Mm-hmm. The company seems to focus on next generation investing. That's how it's described on the website. So firstly, perhaps you can just explain what that means. Okay, I uh, would love to. So this is how I see the whole industry. This, uh, it's a lot to talk about here. Back then, towards the end of 2018, you know, I had this idea. We were discussing so what to do you know, for the next cycle. And uh, that was not that obvious back then. Uh, but, you know, within the friends and our partners, and we were thinking, we, we were convinced 5G cycle, this, this, the new cycle is going to start, and we should focus on, on that. But how should we deliver that? Uh, should we do it in a very traditional hedge fund structure, or should we do something different? We actually made a very conscious decision. We want to do it in an ETF format. For the very right reasons, you know, with face capital, I realized how difficult you know, uh, to get funding, to get money, uh, you know, for a new manager. The whole hedge fund industry is, I think it, it has peaked. It's going downhill. Yeah, I, you know, that's the whole in- industry thing, the headwinds. And uh, we saw that. Uh, but on the other, I came from the pension fund, you know, like endowment. I know how the folks are thinking and how, what they're doing these days. Everybody is in the de-risking phase. They're not, you know, in the mood of allocating the new monies to the new managers. Now alone to like talking about the new strategies. Uh, but on the other hand, the, this is for the true for the whole asset management industry. The money is more coming back to the individual's hands, right? So take a pension, for example. You used to have like DB pension plans. Companies is taking care of you. No, now everybody is moving to the 401k, defend the contribution plans, which meaning you have to take care of yourself. This is true everywhere now. And the money is coming to the individual retail investors' hands, but they are not well served at all. Nobody is the whole industry. That I think that's a shame. You know, the whole industry is still very 
it's close-minded. Everybody still wants to, oh, I want to focus on the bigger pension funds, bigger endowments, bigger insurance companies. I want to serve those folks. I, when I was at Dow Pension, I got you know, emails, research, phone calls all the time. But retail investors don't have that luxury, but they need help. That's where I see the opportunities. You know, I always, actually, I'm not joking. I always talk about the, you know, friends and the other like uh, strategic partners. Why we want to do an ETF? Because I want my parents, my sisters, my friends are able to participate a product I feel comfortable with. You know, if I always get asked many times, you know, Bruce, like buy buy this stock, I sell that. Now things become so easy. Whenever I get a question like that, I I feel confident to tell my friends, you should just buy WTI. <laughs> I put all my best ideas there. But truth be told, and uh, I, I put my sister's, my mom's money, and my personal money all into that WTI. And I think this is fun for the long-term investment. I feel comfortable doing that. So that's the standard I hold when we you know, manage the portfolio or even for the future when we have the new products. Mm-hmm. I'm, the first question I'm going to ask do I feel comfortable putting my mom's money into it? <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's, I say the whole industry is coming to the ETF. Also, the ETF industry is changing as well. I saw this, like, you know, we, we went through like three phases. The first phase, you know, you got a product, but it's very plain vanilla and the beta product, SPY, EEM. Those products are still designed for the institutional asset allocators. You know, that's how they allocate their, their capital. Then you, you went through the, the second phase. You got tons of, you know, like say dividend driven, earnings driven, quality. In the end, that's one kind of a product. That's just the factor based, you know, ETF products, strategies. Those are also designed for the institutional investors, right? If I talk to my mom, my sister, they don't understand what that momentum means, what the value means, what, what the quality means. You know, you have a hurdle to cross to really communicate that. That's just now for the retail investors. Then I think we're coming to the third phase of ETF business. And if you, you really want to serve retail investors, you have to engage them, give them a, a product that they can understand. So like individually, I think most people invest by themes. Okay, I like, for example, digital economy. Although I don't know AMD and Nvidia that well, but I understand what they're doing. That's a lot better than just giving people a quality or growth portfolio. And uh, uh, I just feel like, you know, that's why we focus on the thematic investing and the digital economy, 5G driven digital economy is the first product we are thinking of. And that's also a place you can really combine the active research and the ETF structure together. Yeah. So that's what really inspired us. And I feel like still, I think this is at a very early stage. And uh, that's where we are going to devote our energy and time to for the next decade. <laughs> yeah, I think that was absolutely uh, fascinating. You certainly seem to be ahead, or at least you were ahead when you started Esoterica and you started the fund of that trend, i.e. where people were opening up, they were being more transparent about how they allocated money. And they were trying to figure out how to create more intuitive products for the retail market. I think there's still a way to go, but I think Wuji, for example, is is a perfect product for people that are actually probably quite sophisticated and very intelligent in their own right in terms of they have very uh, successful careers in whatever industry they, they they work in, but they aren't necessarily financial experts. Um, and I think that's often missed with some of the, the more jargon-heavy uh, funds and products out there that obviously you mentioned. So um, yeah, completely agree. And that's certainly something that we talk a lot about uh, here at uh, Opto as well. And it seems that's the sort of product that would serve potentially a younger generation? I mean, do you, do you try and focus on that demographic within that wider target market? Well, you know, uh, although we, we are seeing we're trying to fight, uh, you know, serving the next generation, uh, well, the two meanings, actually. One is we are investing the next generation things, you know, because we look forward. Yeah. And you want to fo- focus on the areas that has a huge TAM, you know, total addressable market and the growth mm-hmm. potentials. But of course, we want to serve the younger generation. I feel like, you know, investment is not something you learn from school. And you have to come out of school, no. making a little bit of money, start practicing. I, you know, in this environment, when you have to take care of your own financial well-being, you want to start early and you want to find a good mentor, a coach. 
Uh, I was lucky when I started my investment career, I find my mentor, uh, Dr. Don Rich. Unfortunately, he passed away last year and miss him a lot. Um, you know, I thought I benefit a lot. You know, somebody who knows what's going on and uh, willing to spend time with you and uh, talking through things that huge, hugely, you know, accelerated my growth in my business. Well, you know, now maybe we cannot do it on you know a one-to-one basis, but you know that's why you see we publish research, publish contents all the time, because I want to let people understand how we, as a you know professional money manager, how we look at the market, how we look at the companies, how we look at the new trends through our like content. I think that's a good way to engage. I wouldn't say it's to educate because I want to make it like a two-way, you know, communication. But at least like a lot of the young folks who are willing to learn, to understand this this particular domain, they get a chance to say some high-quality stuff. I take it as a personal mission. You know, it's sometimes it's not about money, but I feel like I'm very proud if we can make this success. You know, and uh, you, you you go out there making effort to educate the public and let them be more, you know. Able to and equipped to measure their own financial well-being, you know, uh, to a certain extent, you you don't see us writing about WGI per se, because you know I'm perfectly fine. People just coming to our you know website, see the research, and uh, even they just pick the, the the stocks in our portfolio. That's perfectly fine, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just want people to learn what that takes to manage your money well. Yeah, no, I think you do a fantastic job of that. I read quite a lot of the uh, white papers on on your website, and it goes beyond just sort of talking about the investable opportunities and the themes and the sub themes you're exposed to. If you are invested in the in the ETF, there's stuff like how to create a three fund portfolio. There's asset allocation for diversification, and even one paper on how to construct a portfolio, which is quite a you know basic level concept. That's you know it's it's perhaps for a beginner, someone that's not invested before, still someone. You know, sophisticated enough that they can understand the concepts, but someone that is new to investing per se. I wonder whether then you target explicitly beginner or intermediate kind of retail investors more than you target institutional money. How how does that how does that work? Okay, that's also a very very good question. At least as the Asterica brand, the ETF products we have so far. Uh, yes, I have to agree with you. That's more focused on the retail uh, uh, investors. Just you know, uh, we design the product that like that, and we publish the contents just to 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 serve them rather than you know the institutional investors. But that does not mean we just exclude the institutional investors. For example, we do have the SMA accounts. We also have the hedge fund solutions to serving. Uh, we don't have uh, like a pure like you know institutional investors yet. Uh, we do have the very sophisticated family offices with us, seating us. And uh, so I can say we, we de- develop like two product lines. One is more for the, you know, the institutional investors, but they also appreciate the, the, the insights we bring for the new like growth opportunities. They are looking for the, you know, uh, uh, you know those uh, uh, long-term growthy names and the industry sectors to invest in. So our knowledge there is very help- helpful. And uh, also, we manage the uh, the ETF products. That's more for the retail folks, and it's really long term. You know, we, we, uh, the way I look at look at it is, you know, the holdings we have is really for the long term investment rather than the short term trading opportunities. We don't, you know, if you look at WGI's portfolio turnover, I believe the latest number we, you know, we maintained below like a twenty percent. That's really low you know, for actively managing the product. And, but, you know, it doesn't hurt our you know, performance, actually. If anything, I think it helps. We have the courage and the conviction to hold through. You know, this year, is, it's not easy for the growth you know, portfolio, right? And, uh, we went through like the middle of February, March, and the May, and even like a little bit of July, all the growth portfolios were under pressure so for the macro reasons. Well, we, I think we're doing quite fine. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll say um, we'll get on to performance uh, shortly because there's some really interesting points to pick out there as well. Um, well, I think that's a good probably juncture then to move on to kind of what Wuji is invested in explicitly and return to that question that I asked right at the top of the episode. 
Um, so firstly, is, is 5G really a step change compared to fourth generation wireless communication uh, technology, in your opinion? Honestly, I think it is, you know, and it's not just like extension of like 3G, 4G anymore. Yeah. The scope of 5G is really, really like, you know, a huge step function. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's no longer only about the speed and uh, it's also about the low latency because it has the user case implications. A lot of things, if you don't have that kind of like a low latency, you know, this whole 5G thing is not helpful at all autonomous driving in the end, I think that could be a huge, you know, uh, 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 application. Also, you know, the capacity, uh, when you are truly trying to connect everything together, Mm -hmm. well, you need to have that kind of like capacity rather than just a limited, like a number of like smartphones get connected. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, at the end of like the 5G cycle, everything you can imagine in your home, uh, in the on the street, in your city, on the manufacturing floor, are connected. By default, everything are connected. So uh, in that sense, 5G is creating a much much larger mm-hmm. opportunity set uh, for the world. That's way how we see it. It's really digitalizing every corner of our economy. As I think that's the mission, uh, you know, of 5G. When they design the 5G protocols, I think they have that in their mind. It's not only about the, you know, uh, the cell phone uh, wireless communication protocols. They have those like vertical implications in mind. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Well, okay, that's probably a good point then to talk about what a 5G enabled global digital economy might look like. I guess to make this less abstract for the listeners, what do you think? I mean, maybe there's a few sort of big changes you see from today's economy versus what a 5G enabled digital economy might look like. What are the biggest sort of updates and implications this technology might have? Okay. Well, uh, a lot of people actually were asking that questions because they feel I have, everybody got a smartphone, we're connected. So mm-hmm. like a 5G, yeah, sounds interesting. Uh, might be just faster mm-hmm. and you can do something more on your phone. The phone is smart, smart enough. Mm-hmm. What else, right? And uh, mm-hmm. look beyond this. Like what I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, that's for the 4G cycle, mobile internet. People yeah. get connected. Now it's all about like, you know, getting things connected. You know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, 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 like manufacturing, that's one example, healthcare, you know, hospitals, and even the smart cities, all the things out there, they're not connected yet, right? Mm. And uh, uh, even the stuff, you know, your, uh, your TV and your fridge and uh, are not connected. Some people done that already, but most of them, they, you, you just don't, you haven't done that yet. Mm. There are a lot, you know, potential connectivities out there. I think that 5G is trying to capture. Yeah, and uh, 5G is going to really making everything connected. Well, connected is only one thing. More meaningful thing is when, when everything gets connected and uh, well, you need to respond you know, timely, you know, no, no, no latency, no delay. That yeah. just generates tons of data. That just generates tons of data. You can imagine your mind now, like, you know, in the economy you are living in, the society you are living in, mm. you know, every corner is, everything is connected. They are generating data instantly, all the time, right? <laughs> so that's how we look at the 5G opportunities. So, you know, forget about the verticals, the application. Just think about when you are living in a society, in a world, everything is connected. You got to take data over you. How you first generate data? then transport data, then process that data. Eventually, you know, maybe you have to store those data. And, you know, that's how we see the opportunity sets. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it's coming from the 5G cycle. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you some, like, you know, uh, examples. And uh, uh, first yeah, of sure. all, of, of course, like a smartphone is, is early, you know, thing, you know, like everybody was talking about the 5G phone. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, but, you know, uh, uh, within the phone, to enable that 5G thing, uh, you need much better semiconductors. The phone itself, you know, in the 4G cycle, 
we didn't have the smartphone before 40 cycle. Apple basically, you know, invented that, right? So that mm -hmm. marginal change is from zero to one. So that's mm -hmm. huge. That's why like uh, Apple benefited so much through the, the 4G cycle. But mm -hmm. from the 4G to 5G, that's different. You know, everybody got a smartphone already. All you need to do, you just upgrade your phone. So that's no longer a zero to one process. You know, it's just mm -hmm. upgrading. So that's why in the four, 5G cycle, we're not that bullish on the phones at all. <laughs> mm -hmm. But what, mm. what, what has changed is, you know, to enable 5G and all the applications it might be able to achieve. The semiconductors in your phone has to, you know, we, you know professionally what we call the, you know, semi-content. You know, mm. the, the number of chips has to increase, you know, significantly. And, uh, you know, the quality of the, the, the sophistication of the chips have to, you know, increase significantly. So I, that's where say the opportunities and, uh, you know, people should play. And also another example, in the 4G cycle, still most of the time, the, 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 the thing works, you know, on your phone, you get an application, right? You run your application and it sends mm -hmm. signal to the cloud. It's just some central cloud. Yeah. Then it sends this, it, it, it got the process, it sends a signal back. And that's how you use your application. But... In the 5G cycle, when you know some certain applications, just use like autonomous driving or your VR, AR gaming, or even the, some like very sophisticated manufacturing process, it requires latency. It requires very low latency. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I think that's intuitively easier to understand. You know, you spend so much money, effort, on all the engineers make your phone is 5G enabled. So, but all you need to do is really just connect the phone mm -hmm. to the, you know, we call it the radio access network. It's on the edge of the whole thing, right? The whole the computing power. It's only on the edge. 5G only improves the speed and the latency this part, right? That's not enough because you still need to, if you still keep your main application in the central cloud, you know, the data, the signal, you know, goes from here to the radio access network. Then from the radio access in the network to the to the central cloud, mm -hmm. you know that becomes a bottleneck. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just cannot deploy your you know application that way. So that's why these days everybody is talking about edge computing. So you have to to a certain extent you have to move your computing power, moving your application to the edge, making it as close to your you know edge devices and users as close as possible. Uh, so that's something is changing. I think, you know, eventually, eventually, uh, we're gonna, we're still in the process of building the cloud, you know, uh, computing. Uh, but what's new in the 5G cycle is it's not only in the central cloud, you're gonna, we're gonna see the deployment uh, of the, the, the edge cloud computing, and plus all the, you know, softwares and the applications supporting that. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you've done a really good job of sort of summing up the the impact that this can have holistically not just as 5g as a single application i think you rightly underlined that obviously infrastructure is a massively important thing and there's certain elements with within that you've got semis that you talked about cloud computing architecture as well uh, you mentioned edge computing that you know those all i guess contribute to the architecture that is needed to have a 5g enabled uh, next generation economy or digital economy um so i think that's that's absolutely fascinating um, with that in mind, then, I suppose there's going to be other technologies that will leverage this next generation connectivity. So once that architecture is there, there'll be technologies on top of that that can leverage it. That's, to me, and this could be wrong, another opportunity to the investment opportunity in the, the companies that are building the architecture. It's another side of it and another way to access this theme. Perhaps you can talk to us about that other side of the opportunity. That's, that's a very good question. And uh, that's how we, you know, uh, formulate our investment thesis for the next, well, that's the exact reason. I don't think this is like a five-year thing. Mm -hmm. It goes way beyond that. Mm -hmm. Maybe in the first five to 10 years, uh, you build the infrastructure, the things we mentioned earlier. And uh, once you have everything right, just, you know, in the 40 cycle, without the mobile internet, we're not going to have Uber. We are not going to have some, you know, those like uh, uh, delivery services grab, right? And uh, that sort of things. And the same thing, 
once we have the 5G infrastructure ready, being able to, you know, uh, enable all those applications to realize the full potential 5G, uh, you know, it's going to be adopted by different verticals. Uh, easier to understand right now, you know, maybe a lot of people are talking about the gaming, you know, uh, mobile gaming is already, you know, big thing, you know, right now. But in the 5G cycle, it can go even bigger. Uh, people like to discuss like a metaverse, right? <laughs> you live in the virtual world. So imagine when you really do that, you know, you got AR, VR, all kinds of things, you know. Mm, it yeah. requires fast speed and latency and tons of data. I think that the 5G infrastructure is the, the basis for that. Well, you know, uh, people like to talk about the remote and like surgery. I actually believe that's a, a you know a, a key thing for the healthcare industry. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes even today we are constrained by the number of like uh, you know doctors, and uh, they're they're physically constrained. They're not going to able to serve the the broader audience. But when you are able to remotely doing a lot of things uh, without any delay, and uh, you know uh, that just you know uh, release the potential of the healthcare sector a lot. Uh, the productivity improvement to so think about that that's huge and uh, uh, well i believe 5g and related stuff are going to be a big part of that now to mention you know because uh, to me 5g is new you know uh, new incremental opportunities more coming from the business side rather than the you know the consumer side because uh, this part is needs more work uh, manufacturing smart city, even the agriculture. Uh, well, I just couldn't imagine how they use it, but I believe, you know, uh, when the time comes and uh, those are the areas, we're probably going to say something like really innovative changes mm. based yeah. on the 5G and the, all the computing power it brings. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't considered that sort of consumer and business split. I think that's a really important point. And if, if we just finish on one more point uh, on, on this opportunity as a whole before we get into your investment process, I guess there's, again, to me, it seems there's at least there's a tertiary opportunity here, which is the amount of data, you mentioned it earlier, that needs to be processed as a result of these changes being made. I mean, 5G will result in masses of new data being produced. So is this where the software companies come in? And are we going to see um, you know, developments in that space? Are there going to be interesting investment opportunities in software equities as a result? It, it, it's a huge. Let's just, this is actually very broad, very broad like a segment. Let's just focus on the handling the data and uh, make it uh, more uh, friendly for the, you know, 5G, AI are two things that they cannot live with each other. And, uh, you know, uh, they're driven by the same thing, same underlying development. And once you have the tons of data, if you want to get anything out of that, you need AI, you need machine learning, right? Uh, it all comes together. But to enable that at a large scale, when data is spotted everywhere, you need a software infrastructure to support that. That's particularly the reason we like Snowflake. <laughs> they are building the data cloud. Of course, AWS has one, uh, Microsoft has whatever you know, big players has. That's a huge huge uh, growth potential. It's only, we only see the, you know, the tip of iceberg uh, at the moment. Uh, anything related to that, you know, handling the data, make it more useful for the machine learning. And we think it, it, the, the growth potential is huge. Uh, that's also the reason we like you know, MongoDB to a certain extent and any infrastructure play to support that. I think uh, we, you know, some companies still in the you know, uh, private sector and like the data breaks. Uh, those are also the things we, uh, you know, we appreciate a lot. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, let's move on to your investment process then. Uh, but before we discuss the Wuji ETF explicitly, which of course gives investors exposure to all of the themes that we've discussed so far, which is fascinating, I'd like to just briefly cover any sort of overarching principles that inform Esoterica's investment thinking. So I read that you look at four main sectors or categories within this overarching theme that we've discussed so far. Namely, you've got new semiconductors, that's one. You've got cloud and edge computing, number two. SaaS, number three. And number four is an enabling technology. So what, in terms of your investment process, what's the purpose of breaking it down in that way? Well, honestly, that way, it's, it's an easier way to communicate with like retail investors. What, you know, yeah. 
what's in this 5G cycle? They can imagine, okay, yes, Sammy is in there. Computing architecture in there and new SaaS uh, names are there. And then at the end, you know, 5G enabled applications are there. So that's the easy way to communicate. But when it comes to investment process, you know, uh, no matter which sector, which, which theme we are working on, could be semi, uh, could be the cloud, could be SaaS. Uh, the end of the day, we focus, you know, you have to look through it. We are looking for long-term compounders, meaning a company that can grow 20%, 30%, 40% for the foreseeable future. They have the potential to expand their margins. They have the pricing power, right? To help their like bottom line growth. You know, we call those are, you know, compounders. All we do, no matter across the themes, the sectors, the industries, the only thing we are looking for are those, you know, you know, long-term compounders in our portfolio. So at the end of the day, well, why we spend so much time, you know, like energy and those like in-depth, like fundamental research. So that's exactly what we're looking for, long-term compounders. And uh, we felt like, you know, in a 4G cycle, you can say like, uh, you know, Salesforce is a long-term compounder. <laughs> and uh, who could be the 5G cycle uh, in the semi-space? And uh, we feel like, you know, Netflix and AMD are because mm. they are able to really grow their TAM and uh, at the same time expand their margins. And they're continuing to execute well. Uh, uh, so that's, that's fundamentally what we're looking for. And uh, that's not different from many other, like, you know, uh, good, high quality, active management, you know, no matter it's mutual fund or it's hedge fund. Mm. Uh, but I think what makes us special is our true understanding of cycles. Yeah. True understanding of cycles. Uh, research has shown that, you know, uh, let me say this way, because it's easy, you probably you can say me now. Long-term compounder is like you find somebody here and it's very small. You hope in the 10 years or 20 years, their earnings or their sales growth is getting to this point, right? So that's the growth you're looking for. But the company, when it comes here to there, it's not like a straight line. It's not linear because we're dealing yeah. with the market. A lot of times, market is volatile. It's impacted by not only your fundamental reasons, in the, it's impacted by many other factors, macro factors, interest rates, and, uh, you know, uh, some like external shocks like COVID mm. that can also like, you know, <laughs> impact, your, you know, the performance of the equities. Mm. Uh, even like Salesforce, Microsoft, if you look at their fundamental growth, it's, it's, it's a straight line, but their stock doesn't work every year, right? Yeah. For the particular reason we just mentioned. So as an invest, as a portfolio manager, finding the compounders is only the first step. Mm. You make sure all the companies you hope they can deliver fundamentally, they can deliver this kind of like growth. Mm -hmm. But you also need to be able to manage the cycles. When the cycle is right, you have a conviction to bet on them. When cycle is off, because, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, uh, this year is actually perfect example. You know, uh, uh, starting from the February, in the middle of February, market went through a process of really betting on the value and uh, killing the growth, right? And uh, mm -hmm. so that's a lot of, like growth in names under pressure. And uh, it has nothing to do. It has nothing to do with the fundamentals of those growthy companies. Right. It only because, you know, the macro factors in this case, particularly is the yield curve. The yield curve is steepening huge you know, very fastly. And in that environment, you know, investors as markets as a whole actually favor small cap, favor value factors. So for us, finding mm -hmm. the fundamental long-term compounder is the first step and the managing the cycles and to try to generate R for us, amplify uh, that long-term compounding power is the second step. Well, that's how we combine those two things together. As I mentioned earlier, right? I learned the, how to you know, understand the cycle from Dow Chemical Pension. And the way as a team, we learned how to do the fundamental research <laughs> at Alliance Bursting. And now, you know, everything just comes together. We keep like, a, you know, fine tuning our investment process. Because that's another thing. That's another thing. To have a long-term sustainable investment success. 
as a money manager, you have to be able to adapt. You know, the, the things can change. Uh, the the macro environment has changed significantly since you know uh, two thousand eight. The, the the environment is just no longer the same as before. So you have to change your process. How you you know look at valuations. How you you know evaluate the growth. How you look at the cycles is totally different now. I think、uh, that's what we are working on. Yeah, just that second point about sort of managing the cycle. I suppose you know. If your conviction is there in terms of the co- company growing fundamentally and compounding over time, so now you just need to manage your exposure to that company depending on how the psych,、uh, how the market more generally will perform. Is it then just a case of just managing your kind of allocation and the weighting of that stock within the wider portfolio, but never actually truly coming out of the stock, or do you actually sometimes find yourself exiting a position to then come back in at a more favourable entry point? Like how do, how does that functionally work? That's a very very good you know、uh, point.、Uh, think about this you know、uh, at this point、um, even starting from last year、uh, when the yield curve is steepening and、uh, that's a very very favorable you know environment you know、uh, for the cyclical factors cyclical sectors and in our portfolio、uh, that's more related to the semiconductors right and、uh, so that's why we overweight the semiconductors. And within the semiconductors, we used to have more cyclical names. Now we do not have them anymore.、Uh, why? Because cycle has moved on. Curve is no longer steepening, and curve is flattening and consolidating. Which meaning the market is moving on, appreciate high quality names and、uh, even more. So that's why you know you you if you look at our portfolio right now, and、uh, we have more you know、uh, focus and、uh, concentrated on the high quality names. So that's how we look at the cycles and try to combine that underlying stocks, and uh, uh, it, it's going to be reflected on the the weightings of stocks. And but sometimes you know if we find a more interesting names and、uh, it it fits into the the cycle at the moment cycle, we put that into the portfolio. And、uh, if not, we wait until cycle has changed, and we're waiting for the better opportunities.、Um, sometimes the adjustment to the weighting also has something to do with the fundamentals. I. I have to admit that you know when we started, we has the AMD as the top holding. At some point, and we cut it, and later on we added it back.、Uh, it's all about the development. You know the whole semi space. You know the Intel,、uh, the dynamic between Intel and and AMD. It's you know if we have time, we'd love to dig into it. That's quite an interesting story to tell. Yeah, great. Okay, well maybe one for a follow up podcast then.、Um, so. If we just dig into that active management point, then, and let's discuss the investment process now explicitly with the Wuji ETF in mind,、uh, and we'll get onto the performance of that ETF.、Uh, we'll finish on that point as well. But first off, I read on your website, five G is not a light switch; it's an evolution. So the technologies leveraging the next generation of connectivity are fast evolving. This is a very fast changing space and environment. So we've talked about active management already, but how active does this ETF? And the management of the portfolio need to be to generate meaningful returns. Good question. And、uh, when people think, especially retail folks, when they think about the active management, they always think about like you know you're trading all the time.、Mm-hmm. You know you in and out all the time. Try to generate. To me, a lot of times you're just trading noises.、Mm-hmm. You know, I I don't think that's how we generate you know uh, uh, returns. Yeah. And、uh, when we say active management. Probably we mean active research. We discuss ideas and we look at companies, industry on a daily basis. We do in-depth research on a daily basis.、Mm-hmm. All my analysts are,、uh, you know, both in U.S. and China. They they think about those and what could be the next player, who the winners in this particular industry all the time. I call it active research. We discuss ideas, you know, three times a week, you know, as a group. And now to mention the you know daily communication, they talk to the you know companies. And sell-side analysts and the experts all the time. That takes effort. That's active management, or I prefer to say it, you know, active research. I think you know if you do that,、yeah. you can, you know, you're on the path to to the <laughs> success, hopefully,、uh, rather than just sitting there looking at the stock charts、mm-hmm. and in and out trying to 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 catch the you know the benefit from the volatility. That's not how we do it. It's reflected from our portfolio turnover. We we don't have much turnover. 
But when we need to make a move, and we we make a decisive move, yep, that probably dif different from other like some other like thematic active ETFs. Mm. Uh, they might trade a lot. Yeah, um, I personally don't know how much value it has added to the portfolio and performance. But I think we are going to stick to our way of active management. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a really important point. I think it does differentiate you. I mean, everyone hears stories about Ark with Kathy, obviously trading in and out of Tesla every day, multiple trades, a lot of volume going in and out of that stock, for example. So I think it's interesting to identify that actually, no, you, you have a conviction in a portfolio constituent and you, by and large, you, you stick with it. Um, and in terms of identifying attractively valued, well-positioned companies, the, the companies that are going to make it into your portfolio, are there any sort of consistent fundamentals or characteristics uh, that characterize the sorts of companies in your portfolio? Yeah, and both qualitatively and uh, quantitatively. And uh, 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 first of all, this is a, uh, this is a growth portfolio. Mm -hmm. uh, we favor growth. We're looking for growth. So, you know, uh, what really matters to us is this company able to grow in the next you know, a sustainable way in the next like five, 10 years. So that's, you know, that's mm. the most important criteria we're looking at. Uh, uh, you know, it's actually very intuitive. Do they have a very good, uh, like, you know, uh, a TAM, total addressable market to attack? Mm -hmm. And that really just limits their sky, right? You know, uh, you can tell. Second, are they in an industry that, you know, you want to be in a good neighborhood, basically. And also in that neighborhood, you are the leaders and they all has the potential to become a leader. So at the end of the day, all that matters is you can translate into the sustainable top line growth. That's number one. Well, you know, having the growth is only one thing. Are you able to, you know, eventually translate that into the bottom line, the earnings, which takes, you know, tremendous pricing power and also operating leverage. Uh, I think that's the art of like investing in, you know, uh, growthy names. A lot of like, you know, names uh, at the early stage, they have to invest, right? And they have to invest in sales and marketing, R&D uh, to expand their like a market share. So if you just look at their bottom line, horrible. They don't have earnings. That scares a lot of people if you're only blindly looking at valuation metrics. Uh, but if you do your research, you look into the farm companies, you look at the industry structure, their competitive need, you know, advantage. If you have a conviction, uh, you believe they spend money now because they need to get to the like you know to gain the market share, and uh, you believe going forward when they you know get all the market share, when they need to expand their margins, they are able to do that. Well, that's where, you know, your research, your research comes from, you know, you have to, uh, that's how you differentiate yourself from others and being able to identify those companies. Like take Netflix, for example, five, seven, 10 years back, and everybody was criticizing them. Amazon, even today, you know, people are criticizing them, like spending too much money. Yes, you know, top line growth looks good, but they don't make any money. They even had to borrow money to grow. But look at it now, and uh, uh, Netflix is turning into a cash cow. They're going to become, you know, free cash flow even, break even uh, very soon this year, according to the management team. You can see clearly they are able to grow and they are also able to expand their margins. That's where the, op you know, we like, op uh, you know, operating leverage. And uh, I think that's a much safer way, sustainable way uh, to, to, to gain the investment value. We do not like a financial leverage and uh, it just doesn't make much, uh, you know, you're, you are putting yourself into a lot of like unknown risks. Yeah. Okay. And in terms of the securities then that you select, are you limited by any geographies or are you, I mean, you mentioned that you've got analysts in both China and the US. Are those the two markets that you tend to focus on within the portfolio or, or is it completely global? How does that, how does that play out? We are actually very open-minded when it comes to that, you know, and uh, uh, we do not really just limit us to Asia and the U.S. Mm -hmm. markets. And uh, but although those are two markets we're most familiar with, so you want to stay where you know the best. We're less familiar with the European market, for example, uh, and the LATAM. Maybe we we are building up our like expertise there, but you know, not to the levels and. Uh, it's really like finding the companies fitting into our thesis and the proof of themselves to be the long-term compounders. 
and participating this digital economy in a meaningful way. Uh, as long as they are qualified and uh, by those criteria, they should have a seat in our portfolio. Okay, great. And which, if if, if we think about the current portfolio uh, as it stands right now, and obviously it's changing um, some of the time, but which sectors or industries are most represented within the portfolio as it stands? At this moment, we have most holdings in uh, uh, semiconductors. It's because it's more because we are still at the early stage of five G cycle. When you building the either like smartphone five G phones and base stations and even the cloud computings, you know, like at the end of the day, it all comes down to semiconductors, right? So that's part of the reason we have most of the semis uh, in the portfolio. But when this cycle goes on. And uh, people have built their infrastructure, and uh, I can say we're moving towards the software and cloud computing even more. And uh, you know, down the road, you know, maybe five, seven years down the road, you might find that, like half of our portfolio are actually in the in the application, you know, layer rather than the infrastructure layer. We are changing the portfolio, you know, according to the cycle and according to the development of this, you know, digital economy. Yeah, great. And uh, that's borne out, I suppose, in your largest position at the moment, I believe, is NVIDIA. You've got your second largest is C-Limited, uh, which is an interesting company. And it's a sing- Singaporean consumer internet company with with numerous verticals. It seems to embody kind of what Wuji is all about, I suppose, offering somewhat holistic exposure to the new digital economy with businesses in gaming, e-commerce, payments, etc. Um, firstly, is, you know, is that fair? Is that a reason it, it features within the ETF? Yes, exactly. You you said it very well. We actually has uh, you know AMD is also the top holdings, but you know uh, now we split it between AMD and uh, and uh, Xilinx. The reason is we realize there is a huge valuation gap between AMD and Xilinx. Z- Xilinx is on the way to be acquired by AMD. We don't see any reason they could not close the deal. And so that evaluation gap is is something we feel like you know uh, the money left on the table. So that's where you know. So when you say like our true exposure to AMD, you should you know add AMD and uh, Xilinx together. Together, that I think that's also meaningful uh, exposure. We like AMD as a company very very much. <laughs> Good. Okay. Well, let's finish. Couple of questions on uh, performance. Uh, I mean, how, firstly, how has the fund performed since inception back at the end of March last year? I think we have done a good job and we are like, I don't know the exact numbers now, but probably around like uh, 120, even 30%. I, I asked the question knowing the answer. <laughs> I think it's actually above 140% now, oh. at least when I looked um, since inception, which uh, when I looked earlier today, which is, I mean, fantastic performance is massively outperformed uh, kind of market and benchmark averages. So that's phenomenal. And the fund, I think is up 16% there or thereabouts year to date even as well. So pretty, pretty decent growth year to date as well. But why do you think the performance is, has kind of been slower this year? What macro trends and, and kind of headwinds mean that the performance has been less stellar more recently? Okay, well, that's a good question. And like, uh, I actually am very proud of our like, performance this year, year to date. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, yeah. I mentioned earlier in the early part of this year, uh, especially starting from the you know uh, uh, the middle of February, and uh, when everybody was concerned with the inflation, you know higher rates, real yield did like you know jump quite meaningfully. That was hurting the growth portfolios, and uh, uh, so uh, that's the macro headwinds. It's true for every you know growth portfolios out there. Uh, if you compare our performance with like say Arc for example, because to a certain extent, I think we are doing mm-hmm. similar things. And uh, and uh, relatively, I think we are holding up quite well because uh, we did make adjustment. And you know, when cycle goes on, we we switch more to the high quality ones. You know, still maintaining the growth. You know, we want to stay true uh, to our investment thesis. Whoever puts their money in WGI, they should know this is a growth portfolios. And when the whole growth, you know, portfolio is under pressure for the macro reasons, and we're gonna suffer a little bit. You know, just along with the, uh, anybody else. But on a relative basis, uh, we hope we can do better. And also when the cycle changes and we can, you know, we call it a convexity. So when, when market, you know, when the market is down, 
hopefully we've done less, but when the, the right cycle is coming back, we can up, you know, more. Uh, um, on that basis, I think we, this year we actually have done a pretty good job. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'd say. I mean, it's, it's about relative performance, particularly in a market environment like this, I think. And as you say, I mean, even 16% year to date, even on a, on a kind of absolute basis is, is fantastic. But um, I did actually compare the performance over 12 months, so over a year, to the Blue Star 5G communications index. Uh, that was noted on your website as a sort of competitor uh, offering or, or, or I guess a product or an index that offers similar exposure. And actually, I saw that that was up 29.8% over the past 12 months compared to Wuji's 36.3% climb. So those, those figures were taken uh, as of the close yesterday. So even to a product where you've tried to find something that offers the most similar exposure, to, to the product, you still are vastly outperforming that index. So one question to finish on, on the ETF. What is it about sort of Wuji's portfolio construction? Maybe it's the construction security election. I don't know. What do you think is giving you that edge against those similar products offering similar exposures? Okay. Well, you know, although uh, this has to come back to the uh, very original idea, like uh, how you... Uh, think of the 5G opportunities. In our case, and uh, uh, we look at the cycle perspective, we look at more on the things like 5G enabled. So what it takes to build the whole thing together to, you know, to digitalizing your economy. So that's our thesis. In their particular case, they are more focusing on the 5G technology itself. So that's why actually if, if you look at the components of you know, the portfolio construction, we, they have like, you know, uh, smartphone makers. They have the Ericsson, Nokia uh, folks like that, you know, building the, the hardware boxes uh, related to the 5G. Uh, we do not have those names. Why? Because we do not like believe those companies and the sub-industries actually have, can generate meaningful growth in this, you know, in this cycle. Uh, you want to, when you invest in the growth themes, you want to find the pie that's growing faster, bigger than anybody else. Um, we don't see those opportunities mm. and in those particular industries. I think that's a huge, the most important difference uh, between us and them. Also, you know, I hope they do not stay that way, you know, because the whole, you know, infrastructure building is going to end at a certain point. If you just stick to those names, you know, mm. the benefit is gone and uh, uh, you become, you're you know, losing a proper, you know, value proposition. Uh, well, uh, different from like them, and uh, WGI is going to evolve along with the cycles. You know, now we have more semis, and because we try to get benefit from this, you know, infrastructure building. But when cycle moves on, we're moving towards software and applications. Uh, that's some, you know, uh, the benefit we want, you know, give to the to the investors. Yeah, great. Okay, well, I think that's a fantastic point on which to end the main body of the interview. So we do now have our quick fire questions. This shouldn't take more than two minutes. Um, and you can answer in as little as one sentence or one word, if you like, uh, just a lighthearted way to end the episode. So this is a generic list of questions. So they were not specifically tailored to you. We asked the same questions to everyone. And the first one is potentially a tricky one. But what is the top mistake investors make, in your opinion? Top mistake? Being too confident, that's always a tough mistake. <laughs> yeah, good. I heard that one before. Definitely agree with that. Question two then, where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read specific publishers, for example? Uh, well, this is a good question. Um, what I learned, it really depends on where you are in your like, professional cycle. And uh, I just remember mm -hmm. how, where I learned um, all my like, macro stuff and uh, uh, at that time, I was uh, I had the opportunity. We invest in Bridgewater. They published this fantastic, you know, daily observation. I got it every day for three years in a row. I read every single one of those. I even replicate every single chart of that their reports. That's how I build up my you know macro like uh, you know knowledge base, which now I benefit hugely from there. And. Uh, well, you know, uh, maybe not everybody can get that kind of like reports, but uh, principle stays. Find a you know a high quality, you know, uh, uh, source of those kind of like research. Put them out. 
even now i think they i believe they they put out that like kind of the things on the website and uh, just find those and read them yeah. in depth and uh, you know uh, get your hands dirty uh, in this industry it's not only about you know reading you gotta get your hands dirty do things do analysis put numbers in really look at the cycles and try to analyze performance get your hands dirty not only about the talking or, or, or you know or reading if that makes sense that does make sense yeah definitely okay so question three what is the most memorable moment from your career to date do you think well, I have to say now uh, it's the day we <laughs> launched WTI. <laughs> That's a yeah. totally a new chapter of my career, and hopefully we can keep doing this. I'm very proud of the team. Yeah, definitely. Okay, penultimate question then. If you could go back in time and give yourself a top tip to learn from and to live by, what would it be? Uh, professionally? Yeah, I think so. Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, probably stay more disciplined at, you know, like, uh, 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 meaning, you know, like, uh, have the routine and stick yeah. to that, read more, doing more and, uh, stay more disciplined. Yeah. Okay, great. And our final question then, this is sort of the opto question. We aim to speak to the fund managers, the individual traders, individual investors that are outperforming benchmark returns. So we ask everyone, what is an investor's best source of alpha? So if you had to narrow it down to one thing, where do you think the great investors derive their outperformance? Understand the cycle better. I think that drives a lot of like returns. When you Perfect. need to put okay. your... Oh. <laughs> you know, okay. you summed it up so nicely. No, no, feel free to, to, to flesh it out. No, it, I think that's 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 good enough. And uh, when we have like, if we have other episodes to do together, I'll I'll you know talk more in detail. But I think understanding the cycle is way more important than you know just picking one or two right companies. Yeah, no, completely agree. And a nice message to finish the interview on. So, thank you very much, Bruce, for joining us on the uh, on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. Co-fruition.